Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host as we work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And this week we've reached Sermon 725. It's our last sermon from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 12. Over the course of the next week, we'll be breaking into Volume 13. This week, then, we're reading Sermons 724 to 730, 724 to 730, and this is Sermon 725 in uh, in the sequence. Now, each week, we read through those sermons at a pace of one a day. Each week, we focus on a featured sermon, and that becomes the object of the podcast, and you can get a download of that sermon by signing into mediagratii.org slash podcasts and getting a, uh, a newsletter each week. For daily updates, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. So then here we are with Sermon 725, and it comes toward the end of a year. It's preached on the 16th of December, Sunday morning, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London, and it's from Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. And it's really that last phrase that is the topic, the the theme, the issue that Spurgeon wants to raise. Now, Spurgeon seems to be particularly sensitive to things like uh, seasons, uh, passing of time, uh, it really comes out in this sermon, uh, the, the turn of the year, uh, things like uh, Christmas. He, he loves he loves Christmas. Um, doesn't like the idea of the way Christmas is often used, but he, he loves the idea of the, the merriment and the joy of it. Uh, and, and here is a sermon that as he comes to the end of the year, he just seems to feel the pressure ramping up upon his soul. So he, he wants to talk about the fact that Habakkuk heard the speech of God. He says it's the language of reverent obedience and a fit preface to a fervent prayer. And he says that you can hear God in three different ways. First of all, and primarily, continually, by the scriptures given by inspiration. Alas, then, he says, that we should be so deaf to its teachings. Then you can also read something of God or hear his voice in providence, national and personal. There is something to be to be heard there of God directing us. And then uh, the Holy Spirit, that there are, says Spurgeon, these influences of the Spirit on our hearts, these monitions that carry us in the direction of, of the truth, uh, that we are under the influence of God's Spirit. The truth is brought to bear upon our souls in a way that 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 has an impact upon us, and he shows something of that in this sermon. So he says, I have most solemnly sought to hear the speech of Jehovah in my own soul before I came into this pulpit, and I pray that his divine power may enable me to convey that speech to you. So here is the, the emphasis here as he thinks about the reviving of God's work, that the Lord would in wrath remember mercy. So that's that key phrase but the desire is for revival. There's an alarming voice here, there's an appropriate prayer, and there's a potent argument. In wrath, remember mercy. Hear then with solemn awe 
the alarming voice. The speech of God demands your humblest attention. Now, what's interesting at this point is that Spurgeon, rather than expounding the text in particular, seems to have been basically considering truth more generally, to be meditating on the word of God in a way that is intended to produce some substantial impact upon his soul. So he he's come with this real burden. And it's interesting that I'm not saying he's he's taking advantage of the text, but the text is becoming a vehicle in some sense for a more general sense of his his own the weight upon his own soul. So he's been meditating and he uses this very immediate language. This is very Bunyan-esque, this almost immediate sense of God's truth having an impact upon his soul. So he starts off, In my lonely meditations I heard a voice as of one that spake in the name of the Lord. I bowed my head to receive the message, and the voice said, Cry, and when I said, What shall I cry? The answer came to me as to Isaiah of old. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is of the f- is as the flower of the field. The gl- grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. Now, I think it's important to remember that Spurgeon is not saying that he literally heard an audible voice. There are a number of uh, charismatic Christians today, I think, who read this. I've, I've seen and heard people do this and say, aha, you see, Spurgeon is one of us. Spurgeon is not claiming an immediate revelation in that sense. What he's saying is that as he muses, the Holy Spirit brings this truth to bear with an immediacy that is as if he heard a voice. And so he's got this picture before him. I thought I saw before me. Again, he's not claiming God gave me a picture. God gave me a vision. What he's saying is that this is what I was contemplating and this is how I contemplated it. So this is a a lively imagination of a man under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I just think it's important that we clarify what Spurgeon is and is not saying. He is not denying that there's a spiritual influence upon his soul as he has this contemplation, but neither is he claiming dreams, visions, and immediate audible revelations. But he has this this sense then of the, the frailty of humanity. And he says, I've come here this morning sore afraid and much bowed down because of the mortality of man and the certainty of death. We shall soon be gone, every one of us, to his grave. If not by such an alarming catastrophe as that which has amazed and troubled us during this week, but by the common processes of decay. What is it then that is bringing this before Spurgeon's eyes and impressing it upon his heart? Most likely, I think, is something that was called the Oaks Explosion, which was a a colliery in the north of England near a town called Barnsley, which killed some 360 miners and rescuers when a series of explosions ripped through the colliery. Now, Spurgeon's got this in his heart and mind. So now you've got this extra layer. You've got recent events. He's meditating upon them in the light of God's word. And this is the force of the truth that is impressed upon his soul. 
So again, you can see these layers of uh, spiritual working in his heart. And then he said, when I thought about this, and I desired to hear God's speech therein. So you see, you've got these three elements now working together. They're not separate. He says, I've got the, the word of God. I've got the providences of God. And I've got the spirit of God. I'm reading the word of God in the light of the providences of God under the influence of the spirit of God. And in so doing, I then see in my lively imagination a precipice whose frowning steep overhung a sea of fire. And his, uh, his sense then is of men coming to the edge of this cliff and falling into the horrors of hell. Let these two thoughts, my brothers, he says, burn in your souls until all coldness and indifference are consumed. Men die and their souls are lost. Men die and their bodies are laid in the grave, but their souls descend into hell. So this is the pressure that's been building upon his soul. This is responding to what's going to dominate the news in, in England and in London at this particular time. But there's a third element that Spurgeon says is even more dreadful than these realities, these fearful and eternal realities of present death and everlasting judgment. And he says, what could be more terrible than that? And he says this, what if it's true that within the last 12 months, the church of the living God has scarcely made the slightest approach to an advance? So his point is that not only are men dying in their multitudes, not only are many of those who are dying going to hell, but the church seems to be very weak and feeble in responding to this reality. He says, if other Christian churches have not increased more than the Baptists, and he says there, there has been some progress in our own place, but with the exception, he says, of London and actually the county of Glamorgan in Wales, there's been no real increase amongst the Baptists. And if other Christian churches haven't increased more, and I'm persuaded that most of them have increased less, far less than we have, then I am correct in saying that positively, the Church of God in Great Britain and Ireland, instead of making any real advance, has, in proportion to the increase of population, absolutely gone back. And I believe it would be accurate and truthful and could be borne out by statistics that if at this day there were taken a census of the number of persons who commune at the Lord's table, it would be found to be smaller instead of larger than the number at the corresponding period of last year. As for abroad... What have our missions done? The armies of the living God, he concludes, have rather suffered a repulse than gained a victory. Instead of the morning coming and the light arising and the sun advancing to a noonday height, it seems as though at the best he stood still, if the light did not even retrograde. Surely there is a voice from God here, and as I hear it, I am afraid. Meanwhile, what kind of age has this been in which we have lived? He says there's, there's lots going on intellectually, philosophically, politically, but what about true religion? What difference is that making? We've indulged the fancy that we've had a general revival, but is it really so? We've indulged the fancy. We've, we've imagined ourselves that our churches are in a healthy state. Is that true? Let our non-success answer the question. 
In the meantime, while truth slumbers, the legions of evil spirits cease not their mischievous endeavours. He said, if you look around, the, the errors and the, the follies of false religion are sweeping across the landscape. Now, I think we have to stop and say, if, if that's what Spurgeon saw in his day, how much more today with the, the miseries of what's going on in the world around us, both internationally and closer to home, you think about the wars that are being fought, you think about the tragedies that are being enacted, you think about the miseries that are being inflicted, you think about the lives that are being lost, sometimes in their ones and twos, sometimes their tens and twenties, sometimes their hundreds and then their thousands. And you think about what the Church of Jesus Christ is doing or accomplishing where we are. And you have to say, don't we feel something of the same pressure? You who love the Saviour, then, says Spurgeon, will you open your ears to catch the meaning of all these things? Men dying, men perishing, the church slumbering, error covering the land. Does not God say something in all this? And he says, where then is our response? Where's our reaction to this? It's enough to make us afraid. Why, look, my brothers, when God's servants were truly active as the first twelve were, did the cause stand still? Did they win here and there a soul and have now and then a conversion? Did the cause of Christ go back like an army put to the rout? On the contrary, did they not, as soon as ever they received the truth, use it like a firebrand to set the nations on a blaze? You may remind me, he says, of divine sovereignty, if you will, but I remember that divine sovereignty always acts with wisdom and with love, and that the Lord has not said to us, labour in vain. If we had laboured, and if all the Christian church had laboured as they should have laboured, I believe the promise would have been proved, your labour is not in vain in the Lord. So these three streams of divine truth, the scriptures, the revelation of God, the only inspired truth, providence guiding us in how we think and feel, the Holy Spirit influencing us in the way that we respond, make us to hear an alarming voice as we look at what's going on in the world around us in the light of what the scripture speaks under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We see men dying, we see souls perishing, we see a church slumbering, we see nations degenerating, we see error advancing and he's saying, doesn't that stir us? Isn't that a fearful warning, an alarming voice? This is something of God's wrath. That brings us to the second thing, when you're bowed down with the voice of God in this way. The most natural prompting of the regenerate soul is to pray, and that brings us to the appropriate prayer. Spurgeon is, is, is mourning here. You feel the weight in his soul. I wish I had power this morning to make you feel the weight of what I have already brought before you. You've got then this, this passing of time, this seasonal progress, this turning of the year. And Spurgeon is looking at that in the light of these fearful events that have come upon him. And it just seems to impress these things upon his soul. I know I have not put it in such language as I should have chosen, but it seems to me to be perfectly dreadful that there should be this constant dying, this constant ruin, this constant spread of error, and no progress in the church. 
I wonder if as ministers we have the same kind of sensitivity to truth, to providence and to the inward working of the Holy Spirit. If we feel the force of this passing of time, if we've become perhaps dull and cold to the events that are going on around us, if we can hear about disasters and deaths and we've learned to shrug it off, we've got a kind of spiritual compassion fatigue. But Spurgeon says, let's not just drift into that casual response. Habakkuk, bowed down, first turns himself to God. Oh Lord, he says, what will you do? Yes, we should think about why these things happen, but conference with flesh and blood is idle unless preceded by solemn conferences with God. It's God's church, my friends. God is needed. For God's work, God's own arm must be made bare. And then again, the prayer is about God's church. He knew that there were dark days coming, but he doesn't pray about that land in particular. He says, Lord, revive your work. The great thing then to a Christian is not the fate of earthly empires. It's not your country first and foremost, or that country, or wherever else it may be. It's the state of the heavenly kingdom. As to what is to become of this principality or that empire, what have you and I to do with these things? He makes fun of the prophets who are full of what's going to happen in 1866 and 1867. Remember that the sermon is preached at the the end of 1866. He says most of them, their their predictions are far enough away that they've got time to make some money out of their uh, business of prophecy. But he says, we're concerned not about uh, these immediate things, but the rather the spread of the kingdom more broadly. We're servants of the spiritual king whose kingdom is not of this world. That's the only ship we really care for in the storm, the one vessel in which Christ Jesus is riding at the helm, the captain of salvation, the Lord High Admiral of all the seas. Let the nations mix in dire confusion as they will. God rules over all and brings out his church in triumph. So we may be concerned about wars and about dictators and about bureaucrats and about uh, oligarchs or wherever it may be. And Spurgeon says, not that that's entirely wrong, but are we concerned about the church of Christ in the places where we're seeing these things taking place? So, Christian men, if you've heard God's voice in these great judgments that are abroad, let those judgments lead you to pray. Lord, remember thy church, thy church in England, in America, in France, in Germany. We might say today in in Ukraine, in Russia, in China, in, in any one of these places, which is so often in the news, at least where we are. And then, Lord, revive thy work, your work. It's not my work that I want first and, for to, first and foremost to prosper. It's God's. Cannot you, dear friends, in the presence of death which we've been speaking of and in the presence of judgment and in the presence of the fact that the Christian church has not been increased these 12 months, shake off all the bitterness of everything that has to do with self or with party, with, with uh, your, your own group, and now pray, Lord, revive your work. And if your work happens to lie more in one branch of the church than in another, Lord, give that the most reviving. Give us all the blessing, yes, but let your own purposes be accomplished and your own glory come of it, and we shall be well content, though we should be forgotten and unknown. Can we pray like that? Lord, 
even if I am left to one side. Let your work prosper. Let your work advance. And it's a revival by which he means, or which by which we mean when we think of this, a revival of the old gospel preaching and a revival of the old gospel spirit. We cannot get on, he says, with philosophical gospels. We can do without modern learning, but we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be doing with errors and half errors and untruths. We need the truth as it is in Jesus. We need a crucified Christ proclaimed with power. May our pulpits ring with the name of Jesus. May Christ be lifted up and his precious blood be the daily theme of the ministry. Oh, that thousands might be brought to put their trust in the Lamb slain and to find salvation by faith in him whom God has appointed to be the Saviour of men. And that gospel needs to be preached with a holy enthusiasm, which believes in the Holy Ghost, which believes that God is present with his church to do wonders. And when do we want it? Now. He does not say at the end of the years, but in the midst of the years. It's by making known the gospel that the, that sinners are saved, not by thumping the pulpit and stamping the foot, by telling someone that the, the understanding may grasp truth and the memory's got something to hold onto, to publish the doctrine of a reconciled God, to tell men that the Lord has laid help upon Jesus by punishing him instead of us to proclaim that there is life in a look at the crucified one, to tell them that the Holy Ghost creates men new creatures in Christ Jesus, to give a full and comprehensive view of the doctrines of grace. This is one of the surest ways under God of promoting a revival of religion. Isn't this what we desire and isn't this what we need? To make Jesus Christ known as the Saviour of sinners, that God in his mercy may accomplish these wonderful things. So the, the, the sermon here, if you're thinking in structure, you've got those outlines at the beginning, how God tells us what is, what is important, the, the way that truth is revealed, revealed in the scriptures. That's the inspired truth, brought home by providences, stirred up by the Holy Spirit. And in the light of uh, the, the coming of the year's end with this great tragedy in his mind, the first point of the sermon, the, 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 the solemn, the alarming voice, that's the bulk of it so far. And the weight of death and of hell and of a, a feeble church presses him in upon him. Then the second point, this appropriate prayer, this is a little shorter, it's a little tighter, it's bringing us down, if you like, another layer. It's building up the pressure. And then the third point, and he's very, very short here, a potent argument. This is the tip of the spear. This is the point of the sermon. In wrath, remember mercy. And he's thinking both of churches and of land. And he's having said what he said, he is concerned. He, he lives in England. He's a British person. He's a British preacher. This is pressing in upon him. If God were to say to the churches in England, I will have nothing to do with you. You've been so idle, so worldly, so purse-proud, so prayerless, so quarrelsome, so inconsistent, that I will never bless you again. The churches of God in England might remain as astounding monuments of the justice of God towards the people who forsake his ways. Now he says, 
have we really then considered what we've done with the responsibilities that God has given to us? Blessed exceptions, yes, but the church generally has done so little for Christ that if Ichabod were written right across its brow and it were banished from God's house, it would have its deserts. Now, is there perhaps a Christian listening to this who would say, that's not true for me? Where I am, the church to which I belong, the people whom I call my brothers and sisters, the the nation where I live, can I say other than that? Can I say we've done what we should have done, we've served as we should have served, we've laboured as we should have laboured? No, says Spurgeon, we cannot appeal to merit, it must be mercy. In wrath, O God, remember not what we deserve, but remember your own favour toward the undeserving and the ill-deserving. O God, have mercy upon your poor church. Visit her, revive her. She has but a little strength. She has desired to keep your word. O refresh her, restore her to your power, to her your power, and give her yet to be great in this land. And that brings him to the land itself. It's a wicked nation, this England. And is there another nation in the world that could say any different? I couldn't now, living in England today. I doubt you could, living where you are. Its wickedness belongs not to just to the one class, but to all classes. And he's got this sense then of the, the ugliness of the land. Sin runs down our streets. A fringe of elegant morality. Behind it, a mass of rottenness. Sometimes you can... You can walk through even what looks like a, a fairly well-to-do neighbourhood. But if you know what goes on, if you knock on the doors, if you speak to your neighbours, you realise that there's this mass of rottenness, that there's as much sin behind the posh doors as there is behind the, 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 the doors of the houses in the run-down and needy areas. You, where I live, you can walk around the streets and it's perhaps different manifestations of sin. But there's no place where I am where there is no sin. There's the immorality of the streets at night, yes. But what about the dishonesty of businessmen in high places? You can walk past the pubs and the clubs and you'll see the misery and the ugliness. You know where the brothels and the prostitutes are in the town. You know where there are people who are a dealing, a shooting up or whatever it may be and you say oh well that's so terrible but you can walk through the business district you can go through the places where the money is being made cheating and thieving upon the grandest scale are winked at little thieves are punished great thieves untouched this is a wicked city this city of London and the land is full of drunkenness the land is full of fornication the land is full of theft the land is full of all manner of popish idolatry Spurgeon is saying that wherever you go in our society, whether high or low, whatever part of the, the country you go into, whatever class of people you're dealing with, whatever uh, group of men and women, whether they're you know, British born and bred in our case or, or immigrants into the country, whatever land or nation they have come from, you will find sin. There's no one who can say, we are innocent, we are righteous. And so says Spurgeon, For mercy's sake, O God, cast not off this island of the seas, give her not up to internal distraction, leave her not in darkness and blackness forever, but revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. And he says in closing, If you're not a Christian, 
Ask what is God's voice to me? May you be led to seek salvation and remember you shall find it for whoever trusts Christ shall be saved. I find this a sermon that is appropriate at any point. Perhaps uh, most of all Spurgeon with that sense of an annual review and a, a, a conviction that the church has not done what it should have done and then the additional pressure of those recent local tragedies up there in Barnsley he feels the weight of these things now you might not be at one of those seasons of review you may not be hearing this in the light of some recent disaster or tragedy near at hand but don't we feel something of the same weight we read our bibles we look at the world around us and under the influence of God's gracious spirit, can we conclude anything less that there is this desperate need for God to work, that to work in his church for his glory, by his ways, to his ends, for the honour of his name? What do we plead? Lord, mercy. Mercy for the land in which we live, mercy for the church to which we belong, mercy for the, the cause of Christ in the place where he has put us. May God then do us good in these things. May God stir us to pray, to labour, to look for the glory and for the honour of his name. And as we think about where we are and what we need, may God help us to pray, Lord, revive your own work in wrath, remember mercy. Do please listen again in the future. I hope that you are appreciating these things. We'd love for others to learn more about uh, Jesus Christ and to enjoy these sermons and their impact upon them. So please do, if you can, uh, leave us a review or, or tell others and uh, share these things. We're so glad that you're listening and we really do hope and pray that it's a blessing to many. Thank you and God bless. <laughs>